0: Hello and welcome to the BNP Paribas Markets 360 podcast. We cover the topics that matter from the global economy to market strategy.
1: Good morning from New York City. Today is November 4th, Friday morning. I'm Carl Rokhodana, Chief U.S. Economist at BNP Paribas. I'm joined by my colleague, Senior U.S. Economist Andy Schneider. I'm also joined by our Head of U.S. Government Affairs, Tom Rosenketter out of Washington, D.C. And on today's podcast, we'd like to discuss the uh, likely outcome of the midterm elections coming up uh, early next week and also the potential policy and macroeconomic implications thereof. So good morning, Tom. Good morning, Andy. Thanks for joining. And uh, let's start off by uh, uh, asking Tom some questions here. Uh, Tom, if you could give us a general outlook for uh, what, what the polls are suggesting with the upcoming midterms.
2: Yeah, so thank you, Carl. I would say that when we look at um, the polling, it's been a little bit of a roller coaster this year. Prospects for Democrats in May and June were looking quite dire, but then Democrats found their footing and had a great month in August. And we saw the polls; we saw Democrats on an upswing, upswing in late July through mid September. And while things were looking really good for Democrats, I think at that point in time, the polls have started to trend in favor of Republicans in October as interest rates started going up and the markets started to uh, falter. And what we see now is that most polls are within the margin of error. And I think the big sort of unknown right now is there's a lot of uh, concerns about quality of polling. And we don't really know what the actual turnout will be until election day, but we expect it will be high. And we think there's a lot of enthusiasm. Um, So I think at this point, uh, Republicans are favorite to win the House, and it's a really on the on the razor's edge of who will control the Senate.
1: It's, uh, I guess, extremely unusual for the uh, sitting president to actually pick up seats in the first set of midterms. If we, if we look back all the way to uh, Richard Nixon, uh, this has only happened on uh, one instance. That was George W. Bush after the uh, September 11th attacks. And, and in fact, as I tally them up, it's usually about a a thirty sweet su- uh, thirty seat swing uh, against a sitting president. So, given the the narrow uh, majority that uh, Democrats have in the House, then this is a pretty. Uh, uh, likely outcome that we see the House flip. Uh, and as you mentioned, the Senate's a, a close call. So I guess uh, my, my first question uh, uh, as a follow up would be, uh, you know what do you see as a, a difference in outcome uh, if it's uh, divided Congress versus uh, Republicans controlling uh, both uh, both houses of uh, the Senate and uh, House of Representatives? Does that impact um, the, the policy landscape heading into the second half of uh, Biden's first term?
2: So this is a great question. I think, in in large measure, really, if Republicans take one half of the Congress, which in this case would be likely the House of Representatives, that's really the big news story. And because of that, that's where we'll see the changes to policy that will occur. Um, If Republicans also take the Senate, it's marginally more impact that Republicans can have on the fiscal policy um, and some of the other sort of regulatory policy issues that are present, but um, but I'd say it's only a marginal difference. Uh, looking into 2024 though, politically, the other aspect that may be a little bit negative for Republicans is if they control both houses of Congress, then they'll get more credit or blame depending on how the economy goes and how the political winds blow.
1: Okay, uh, so Tom, if you could uh, take a step back then and, and- Give us your sense of what the most important policy issues will be uh, assuming a, a split congress or, uh, or a republican controlled uh, congress heading into the uh, second half of the first term here
2: right so i think the first order of business is that we should expect less fiscal stimulus uh, so no more trillion dollar packages uh, will be on the agenda uh, i think the other thing that we would see in the sort of near term is that there's going to be more scrutiny on Ukraine funding, which isn't to say that it's not going to happen, but I think the bar for achieving it is higher. And the other issue that I would say from a fiscal standpoint to look at is that Republicans uh, typically have a harder time passing the sort of must pass fiscal bills, whether it's the annual appropriations bills that fund the U.S. operations of the government or the pending debt ceiling, which is likely to come due uh, the summer of 2023 or thereabouts. And so I think those are probably the big risks. Um, The other sort of two issues that I might raise is that I think there's economic nationalism will continue to be kind of a theme and looking to sort of shorten supply chains and reduce the dependence on China. I think that's gonna be a bipartisan issue. Um, We can even just look to the comments of the Commerce, uh, Commerce Secretary last night uh, on this topic so uh, it's you know a guy post
1: so, so some room for compromise i I, I guess uh, but the debt ceiling standoff with a you uh... Uh, a democratic president, a uh, possible uh, still democratic majority in the Senate, and a Republican House. I, I've I've seen this uh, this movie before, uh, back in 2011, uh, when we had uh, the uh, ratings downgrade in the U.S. and whatnot. So that does, that is a, a potentially significant uh, policy uh, uh, issue we have to consider uh, while kind of the prevailing sentiment is uh, gridlock in Washington, D.C., debt ceiling standoff would certainly have some real uh, implications. Uh, Let me turn to our our second guest today, uh, senior U.S. economist Andy Schneider. Uh, And Andy, uh, you know, as we think about debt ceiling standoff and, you know, the timing is uh, middle of next year, uh, you know, what what are your thoughts around this?
0: Yeah, thanks, Carl. So, And when we look at past instances of divided governments, um, it's an absolute truth that parties have used the debt ceiling as a way to extract concessions uh, from the other side, effectively in a game of chicken. And, you know, the last three major debt ceiling fights back in 1995 and 2011 In 2013, um, coincidentally, they all took place under a Democratic president and a Republican-controlled House, which, you know, appears to be the most likely outcome. So, um, you know, this time around, Republicans would be entering government with fiscal priorities that clearly contravene both past and future Democratic fiscal actions. So if you look at likely have Speaker McCarthy's uh, commitment to America document, Republicans are seeking to end the Build Back Better legislation, eliminate, you know, quote unquote, wasteful government spending that's driving inflation, um, as well as extend or make permanent the Trump Tax Cuts and Job Acts. So a lot, a lot of demands from the Democrats. The Democrats are unlikely to be, um, you know, too, uh, too um, apt to uh, pursue. So um no Republicans in the House or Senate voted to raise the debt ceiling last December when the, the ceiling was raised. Um I don't think this fact necessarily means that Republicans are again gonna refuse to do so as once you get, you know, political power your behavior could change versus when you're the minority. But at the same time, inflation remains the public's chief concerns. So there is a case that Republicans could feel pretty emboldened to use the debt ceiling to force Democratic concessions. So I do think it's a very, very uh, clear risk. And it's something, in fact, we should even count on. So in terms of timing. Mid 2023 seems to be when we're going to push up against the debt ceiling, but I'd say the risks even tilt towards earlier than that, given that we expect the economy to slow to zero growth in Q1, actually contract in Q2. So that means tax revenues can be really, really weak, and we can even push up against the debt ceiling, you know, earlier in the year. Right. So it sounds like you're pulling it
1: forward, Andy. uh, Potentially the time where we have to uh, confront the debt ceiling. Uh, But looking at leading again into the uh, fiscal issue here. Uh, if we have divided Congress, uh, we, we've, we've been through austerity uh, before and reconciliation and whatnot. So how does this factor into the, the broader BNP uh, macro view for the U.S., Andy, in terms of uh, you know, recession risk and uh, potentially even Federal Reserve uh, setting of monetary policy?
0: Yeah, so, Carl, I think this is a key point. Um, And when we look back at past recessions, almost, you know, very typically, we get active fiscal policy, which helps us get out of recession and helps us, you know, get a recovery that's at least a little bit um, stronger than it would have been with no fiscal action. But if you look at the same Republican Republican priorities that are going to drive the debt ceiling conflict, those same ones, I think, are going to prevent expansionary active fiscal policy from helping us out of recession in 2024. So... In effect, our growth forecast, we have a recession starting in Q2 next year. Um, which is something of a shallow recession, but it's paired in 2024 with a pretty weak recovery. So we have GDP growth contracting by a percent over 2023 and only recovering by 0.7% in 2024. And the reason for that is we expect no likely fiscal support out of recession. And this would really stand in opposition to policy over the last four recessions, where we saw some fiscal rescue in response to it. Um, But when we look at these Republican priorities, Again, for the same reason as we expect some debt ceiling conflicts, we don't think Republicans are going to come on board for a fiscal rescue plan out of recession in 2024. So instead, we're going to have a recovery with no fiscal action. And on top of that, with Fed having to remain you know, in restrictive policy, even though they may cut rates. Well, Andy, uh, restrictive Fed and uh, restrictive fiscal policy, maybe we'll make
1: some, uh, finally make some progress on the inflation front. Uh, Just quickly in closing, Andy, as we think about recession risk in 2023, uh, how unusual is that in the
0: president's first term? Yeah, so coincidentally, Carl, it is not unusual. Um, In fact, if we look at the last 11 recessions that happened since the end of World War II, Um, accepting the COVID recession, nine of those 11 recessions happened during the first term of the presidency. And of those nine recessions, six actually happened after the midterm election. So in that respect, Q2 2023 recession, that would be very common when we look back at recent history. Very, very consistent
1: with the historical record. Uh, I want to thank uh, Tom Rosenketter, head of U.S. Government Affairs, and of course, Andy Schneider, senior U.S. economist, uh, for participating in today's podcast. Uh, We hope all of those of you listening in have enjoyed this and uh, we look forward uh, to having you continue to join our uh, podcast going forward.
0: This communication does not constitute research, a recommendation or any form of advice from BMP Paribas or its affiliates. It does not consider your financial circumstances or objectives and it may not be suitable for you. It should not be copied or reproduced in whole or in part.